You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Uh, Our text for this weekend, it is our our gospel reading that we're going to be looking at, is at the very end of John 1. And so that's what I'm going to preach on today. And the title of my sermon, and I'm very excited about my sermon, uh, it's called Underneath the Fig Tree. There are sermons, believe it or not, that I'm not very excited sometimes to preach. I don't tell you when I'm preaching them, but there are sometimes sermons I'm like, I don't know, I, I can't wait to get this one behind me. This is when I'm like, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I think I've got some things to say. Underneath the fig tree, let's look at John chapter 1, uh, the first few verses of this story at the end of gospel, the gospel of um, John, 1, John 1. Philip found Nathanael. And said to him, we have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathanael said to him, come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, where did you get to know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree. So now that Jesus has been baptized by his cousin John, he begins his ministry now by relocating from his childhood home of Nazareth to the tiny little seaside village of Capernaum right there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and it's there where Jesus now will begin to call forth his very first disciples and the first disciples of Jesus were all fishermen first as as John tells the story is Andrew and then Andrew after becoming a disciple of Jesus, and answering his invitation, he brings his brother to introduce him to Jesus, Simon, who will later be renamed Peter. And then there are the two brothers, the two sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, James and John. And they become the first four disciples, all four of them fishermen. And then right there on the bank of the Sea of Galilee is a tax booth. Whereas fishermen are coming into Capernaum to bring their fishing boats and their fishing nets and their catch for the day, the tax man now will examine their catch and come up with a number and say, all right, you owe X amount of money, pay up. And then that money will be collected and brought to Tiberius next to Capernaum, the Roman capital in Galilee. And then that will be transferred over to Caesarea Maritima. If you've been to Israel with us, you know exactly where these places are. And it's brought over to Caesarea Maritima. And from there, it will sail across the Mediterranean Sea. And it all funnels into Rome. And if you're a first century Jewish fisherman, you deeply resent this entire situation. First of all, you hate Rome and everything that they stand for. You hate the fact that you're being taxed exorbitantly to the point where you can barely scratch out a living and you work so hard. 
But most of all, you especially hate these tax collectors because the tax collectors were Jews themselves in Israel. They have turned their back upon their own people and are getting rich by exploiting their own people in collusion with those godless pagan Romans. And so there's no one that a fisherman would hate more than the tax guy on the shore of the sea. And it just so happens that that one particular guy who works the tax booth on the shore of Capernaum is a guy named Matthias Levi, Matthew. And Jesus enlists Matthew to be his next disciple. So now you got five disciples, the tax collector Matthew, and four guys who can't stand people like him. And Jesus calls all of them into his fold to follow his way. These guys are all um, probably no later than their early 20s, probably even younger than that, maybe in their late teens or mid-teens. These are young men. But when Jesus says, follow me, he's, it's an invitation to leave what they've been doing. Like leave the tax booth, leave your fishing nets, and come enlist as a formal, full-time disciple of this Galilean rabbi who is now going to teach you his way, his truth, his life. And eventually there will be 12 of these disciples. Now, why 12? Think with me. Why not 11 or 13 or anything, any other number? Why specifically 12 disciples? Because by choosing 12 disciples, Jesus is reconstituting the 12 tribes of Israel around himself. The mission of Israel... The purpose of Israel, the goal of Israel is now being fulfilled in and through the person of Jesus Christ. You could say it this way. Jesus is laying the foundation for a new kind of Israel. One that's no longer based upon ethnicity or Torah observance or circumcision, but one that is now based upon faith and baptism and obedience unto God's Messiah. That's why there will be 12 disciples. And at least half of these men, maybe more, but at least half of these disciples will come from the tiny little seaside town of Bethsaida, which is two miles away from Capernaum, little fishing village on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. And one of these disciples that was a fisherman who came from Bethsaida was a man named Philip. Now, Philip is a Greek name. It's unlike these other guys. He's got a Greek name. We kind of surmise that Philip was, he probably had a Greek father and a Jewish mother. And he seems to have spoken very fluently in Greek. There's evidence of that in the Gospels. Nevertheless, Philip becomes a disciple of Jesus. And now Philip remembers his devout friend, Nathaniel, who also lives in Bethsaida. And Philip wants to introduce Nathaniel to Jesus. So Philip walks into Bethsaida and he finds his good friend, his rather devout friend, Nathaniel, sitting underneath a fig tree. Now, fig trees were and are still very common in Israel today. And a fig tree is a good place to sit. It's a good place to contemplate, to reflect, to think about things. You know, it's got these big leafy branches that provide a lot of shade. And there's these uh, roots typically that have deep, smooth grooves that you can kind of nestle into. Think of it as sort of like a first century recliner. 
And so Philip finds his friend Nathaniel nestled into the roots of one of these fig trees. And Philip comes to him and he says, Nathaniel, we have found the one. Nathaniel's like, what do you mean the one? He's like, what do you mean, what do I mean the one? I'm talking about the one Moses and the prophets have told us about. You know what I mean, like the Messiah. That's who I'm talking about. We found him. And it's this guy, Jesus from Nazareth, who's the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel's like, Nazareth, that little hillbilly town over there, nothing ever great comes out of Nazareth. There's no, there's no great rabbis. There's no rabbinical school in Nazareth. They're just a bunch of day laborers that live over there. It can't be. And Philip says, come and see. And so Philip and Nathaniel make the little trek from Bethsaida to Capernaum, a little two-mile walk, and, and they make their way into Capernaum, and finally they locate Jesus and as they're approaching, Jesus fixes his eyes on Nathanael and says, ah, there's a son of Israel. There's a true son of Israel in whom there's no deceit. And Nathanael says, where did you get to know me? And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. And watch what happens. Verse 49, picking it up. Verse 49. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And, and right there he's referencing, of course, that famous dream that Jacob had way back in Genesis 32. You remember Jacob is underneath the stars. He's laying his head on a rock, using it for a pillow, and he falls asleep, and he dreams. He sees this ladder suspended between the earth and the heavens, and there are angels ascending and descending the ladder. That's what Jesus is referring to. He's, he, what he's saying to him is, I'm that ladder. I'm that connecting point that connects humanity with God. And then that's the story. That's where it ends. And presumably Nathaniel becomes the next disciple. Well, here's how I want us to get started today. We speak of Peter typically as being the very first disciple to make the formal confession that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, we typically say that, and it's appropriate that we do that because that's the way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the story. According to the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, about a, a year and a half into Jesus' ministry, when he's up there uh, in the region of Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, they're having this conversation, and Jesus says, uh, who do you guys say that I am? Who do you think I am? And Peter's the one who steps out and boldly declares, I know who you are. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's the first one to actually step out there and say that out loud. And, uh, and so it's like this big moment, of course. And, and, and Peter becomes prominent among the, the apostles, for sure. But John has another story to tell. John's always got another story to tell. And according to John, a year and a half before... Peter makes that bold confession in the region of Caesarea Philippi, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. John tells us that Nathanael, 
upon just meeting Jesus for the first time, says, Rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the true king of Israel, which is synonyms for you're the Messiah and you're the Christ. So according to John, the very first disciple to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, the king of Israel, it's not Peter, it's actually Nathaniel. And he does it after Jesus tells him, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, these guys have never met before. And Nathanael walks up to Jesus and Jesus says, Aha, there's a true son of Israel in whom there's no guile and no deceit. And Nathanael says, Where did you get to know me? And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathanael had just been sitting underneath the fig tree in Bethsaida, two miles away. So that's pretty impressive. It's a big moment. But I suspect that there's more going on here than just Jesus' minor miracle of a word of knowledge regarding the whereabouts of Nathanael. It's not just that Jesus knew where Nathanael was when Philip found him, but what Nathanael was doing under the fig tree in Bethsaida. Now, before I show you what I think Nathanael was doing underneath the fig tree, I want to read to you a portion of an ancient prophetic poem that comes from the prophet Micah 700 years before Jesus was born. Look at this with me. This is Micah prophetically envisioning what the world will one day be like when God makes it right. The way he would have termed it is the messianic age. Micah writes this, In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's temple shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up above the hills. People shall stream to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. This prophetic poem from Micah was written 700 years before Christ. Seven centuries before Jesus walked the shores of Galilee, Micah writes this poem. Now, a little bit later, Isaiah will take Micah's poem and he'll appropriate some of the language of it and put it into one of his own poems and make it even more famous. Kind of like what Jimi Hendrix did with All Along the Watchtower. Everybody says, that's a Jimi Hendrix song. It's a Bob Dylan song. And it became a Jimi Hendrix song. Nevertheless. Micah's the one who originally comes up with this language. And it's Micah who specifically mentions the fig tree. He prophesies, in the age of Messiah, every man will sit under his own fig tree without fear. That's what Micah prophesies 700 years before Christ. But now with Nathaniel, we're 700 years later. It's been seven centuries and Israel is now occupied by this 
foreign enemy power and they're very much afraid. And yet there's this prophecy that when Messiah comes, each person will sin under their own fig tree without fear. And so when Jesus describes the character of Nathanael in a sentence and says, behold, this is a real son of Israel. He's not playing games. He is intent on living out the covenant. When Nathanael says, where did you get to know me? Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. The rabbis, Jewish rabbis encouraged people constantly to meditate on the law. You find that language frequently in the Psalms and the Proverbs, meditate on the law. It's good to meditate on God's promises, on the character of God. Meditate on the law day and night, over and over again. And the rabbis would tell people, they would say, it's better if you meditate outdoors, underneath God's heaven. Get out from under your roof. Step outside and meditate. And, and, and they would say, a fig tree is a good place to do that. A fig tree is a good place to contemplate, to reflect, to meditate on God and His goodness and His law. In fact, for whatever reason, in many wisdom traditions, contemplation is encouraged under a fig tree. So, was Nathaniel under the fig tree meditating on Micah's prophecy and saying, Oh Lord, how long? I don't know. I can't say that with certainty. But something like that would explain, Mike, would explain Nathaniel's response when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. Because notice, Nathaniel doesn't respond by saying, wow, that's a pretty cool magic trick. Tell me how you did that. No, Nathaniel responds by saying, you're the son of God. You're the true king of Israel. He's more than just impressed. He's persuaded that this man is the long-awaited Messiah of God, that, that Nathaniel was meditating on something under the fig tree that Jesus is fulfilling. I can just see Nathaniel meditating under the fig tree on God and His promises and His purposes. I can see him just saying, Oh God, oh God, you said there would be a day when we would sit under our fig tree without fear, when all's going to be made right. But here we are, your people, still in being dominated and oppressed by foreign pagan powers. How long, Lord? How much longer? When are you going to send your Messiah? When are you going to send that Savior, that Deliverer? When is that age going to come when we'll be able to sit under our fig tree without fear, in, in peace, in shalom? How long? And half an hour later, Nathaniel says, where did you get to know me? And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. Well, nobody knew what Nathaniel was doing under that fig tree except God. And now Jesus. And he says, you're the true son of God. You're the true king of Israel. Well, there's all kinds of directions that I could take this tonight. But here's, here's where I want to go with this. I want to reflect on this with you. What does it mean for you and I to sit under the fig tree? Where's that time and space in your life of contemplation? Where's that space in your life where you can encounter God in stillness? Or even better yet, as it pertains to this story, where God can encounter you? Where's your fig tree? 
Um, in a few weeks, on February 10th, on Saturday, I will be leading yet another prayer workshop here at Village Church. Most of you have been part of a prayer workshop. I, by, by this point in my life, I've led hundreds of people through this. And one of the things that I teach people in the prayer workshop, one of the things, is I teach on what the Christian mystics have historically, traditionally called contemplative prayer. I like to think of it simply as sitting with Jesus. That's what I call it. I invite people into a practice of just simply sitting with Jesus in quiet, in stillness, in your prayer time. Now, there's a little bit more to it than that, because if you just say, okay, I'm going to, Ryan said this, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to sit with Jesus, but you don't, have any, you don't have any track of prayer, you don't have any formation that leads you into that, pretty soon you'll realize what you're doing is just simply sitting there by yourself because your mind is very unruly. And so we need a track of prayer. We need some formative prayer to quiet our mind, to quiet our soul, to bring us to a place where we can in reality sit with Jesus and be present to him. And so imagine, you know, it's just very simple. I'm sitting there. I'm literally sitting there in stillness and quiet. And maybe there's something that's troubling me. Maybe there's a problem in my life with a neighbor or at work or in my home or in my bank account, it could be a zillion different things, but maybe there's something weighing on me or maybe it's a potential opportunity that I've become preoccupied with that's been on my mind a lot. Rather than directing Jesus to do what I think he ought to do, I simply take that situation. I sit down, I place it in front of me. I imagine Jesus sitting there across from me and I just release the agenda of the prayer time to him. And I quiet myself and I sit with Jesus for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, at least five minutes. I sit with Jesus. And when I say sit with Jesus, I mean, this is, I want to emphasize, this is largely prayer without words. And especially it's prayer without agenda. Because evangelicals here in America, if we're not taught otherwise, all we know exclusively is agenda-driven prayer. We've got an issue, and so I go to Jesus, and I tell Jesus, fix this, change this, cast it out. You know, if we're Pentecostals, bind it, loose it, do this, do that. So I'm telling Jesus, I'm using Jesus to do what I think he ought to do. That's not sitting with Jesus. Sitting with Jesus is just as I describe it. I got this big soul-troubling issue. Maybe it's a work issue. Maybe it's a spiritual thing. Maybe it's whatever. But it's the elephant in the room. And instead of just blabbering on and on, and, 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 and there's, there's a time for expressing. I'm not saying there's not a time to express your anguish. But there's also a time to quiet yourself, to quiet your soul, and to release the agenda to the Lord. And give God an opportunity. Just simply sit with Jesus. This may happen in a single moment, or you may do this over a series of days maybe even a series of weeks. And perhaps at some point, Jesus may have something to say. Or he may take you around and show you a 360 degree viewpoint of the issue that gives you a different framework, whatever it is. But let me emphasize this. When we sit with Jesus, we may not see Jesus, but Jesus sees us. 
So you may sit there and you may say, all right, Pastor Ryan taught me to, taught me to sit with Jesus. I'm going to sit with Jesus. But man, I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of this. I don't, I don't see him. I don't see anything. Maybe that's not the point. In fact, notice in this story, Nathaniel doesn't say, Jesus, I saw you under the fig tree. Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. You didn't see me, but I saw you under the fig tree. It's the place of contemplative prayer, under the fig tree. About to close, but I want to tell you the story. I want to tell you a story about St. Augustine. St. Augustine was born in North Africa, in the late Roman Empire, what we would call Algeria today. He was born in the year 354 A.D. His, um, he's, he's, he is the, he's become the most influential church father in Western Christianity, bar none. But he was born in what we call Algeria, 354 A.D. His mother was a Christian. His father was a pagan. And Augustine himself was not baptized, did not become a Christian all throughout his childhood into his adult life. He lived a very pagan, promiscuous life. He was a very keen intellectual mind. Augustine is one of the greatest thinkers in all of human history. Very profound uh, intellect. And uh, he was trained in rhetoric, and he would end up uh, teaching rhetoric at the university in uh, Milan, which was the seat of government at that time. And anytime Caesar was around, he would be in Milan. And he was, Augustine was initiated into court life and all of this. He was very high-ranking, very highly prominent in his society. Augustine, as I mentioned, he was also what we would call a party animal today. He lived a very sensual lifestyle. He loved women and had a child out of wedlock with his girlfriend. And he just really indulged in that kind of life for, for quite some time. But now we arrive in the year 386. He's 31 years old. And Augustine is sitting at his home with his best friend, Olympias. And they're at a gaming table and they're playing this game or whatever. And right there on the side of the gaming table is a copy of one of uh, Paul's epistles. Because he's a scholar and he, he likes to study. He's, he's studying all the world religions and at this point, he's investigating Christianity. He knows something of Christianity, but Augustine just tells himself, I, I just don't have what it takes to actually be a Christian because Augustine knew that to be a Christian is not just simply bow your head, say a little prayer, and voila. No, to be a Christian is to actually follow Jesus. And uh, he wasn't sure if he could do that, especially if it meant giving up his sensual life. So he's sitting there with Olympias at his gaming table, and one of their friends walks into the house and he begins to tell them a story about how four of their friends had just recently become Christians. And these four friends were also very high up in the Roman government. I mean, they had everything. They had access to everything that the Roman Empire could possibly offer them. And they turned their back on it in order to follow Jesus. And Augustine was intrigued, but he was also kind of disturbed. And the friend began to tell them about what inspired them 
that they had heard about the story of St. Anthony two centuries earlier. He had done the same thing. St. Anthony had the world by the tail, and he ended up um, leaving all of that to follow Jesus. So they hear this story, and then the friend leaves, and Augustine and Olympias are left sitting there at this gaming table. And at this point now, they've forgotten all about the game. It's July of 386. It's really hot. And Augustine looks at his friend Olympias and he says, man, what are we doing? What's wrong with us? Look at what our friends have done, man. They, it seems to me that they have found something true. They've found a certain way of being that has some meaning and some purpose, some weight behind it. They are living what looks to me like the way life is meant to be lived. They've discovered something, and you and I are just, what are we doing? We're paralyzed. We're stuck in this old way of life, this old cycle, trying to climb up the ladder. He didn't use this term, but if he'd have known it, he would have. We're stuck in the rat race, trying to climb up the rungs of success, and then what? Just more emptiness every time. What are we doing? And he begins to cry. He begins to weep. And Augustine, um, he starts to get embarrassed that he's weeping in front of his friends, so he leaves the house. And he writes about all of this. He tells us about this in his book, Confessions. And he leaves the house, and he goes outside into his garden, and he begins to weep uncontrollably, and he throws himself down underneath... Uh, anybody want to guess what he throws himself underneath? A, he throws himself down underneath a fig tree. And he sits there underneath a fig tree, and he's just crying out to God. And he says, God, how long? How long do things have to be this way in my life? I feel stuck. I feel paralyzed. I feel like there's nowhere to go. And there's a part of me that wants to follow you, and I, I just don't feel like I can. I'm too weak. God, what do I do? How long? What do I do? And as he's weeping there underneath the fig tree, he hears the voice of a small child. He says, I, I couldn't even tell if it was a little boy or a little girl, but he hears the voice of this small child singing over and over again two words. Take and read. Take and read. Take and read. He's there crying out, how long, Lord? What do I do? What do I do? How long? Take and read. Take and read. Well, Augustine takes this to be a word from God. And he gets up and he goes back in the house. Olympias is still there. The gaming table's still there. But he goes over and he reaches for that copy of one of Paul's epistles. And he does this. This great mind, this profound intellect, one of the sharpest thinkers in the history of the world. He takes a copy of Paul's epistle and he does this. How many of you have ever done that before, honestly? We all have. Don't, don't even try to pretend you haven't. And if you've ever done that before and it's ever worked for you, don't do it a second time because it won't work. <laughs> but that's what Augustine does. He just takes it. He just randomly opens to a spot, puts his finger down, and he looks down, and it works for him. He looks down, and his finger landed on what you and I call Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, 
Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to satisfy its desires. And Augustine hands it to Olympias and he says, look at that right there. That's what I'm doing. I'm becoming a Christian. I'm going to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm going to leave no provision for the flesh. I'm becoming a Christian. And Olympus looks and he keeps reading one verse later where it says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. And so Olympus says, I'm weak in the faith, but will you welcome me to join me in what you're doing? And both of those men get baptized. They eventually become bishops and leaders in early Christianity. All because Augustine cried out to God in contemplation underneath the fig tree. A fig tree is a good place for contemplation. Now, I'm not telling you to plant a fig tree in your yard. I'm just, I'm saying there's something about a contemplative soul. Because we do not live in a contemplative age. We live in a very reactive age. And I'm talking about in the world of religion and in the world of politics. We live in a very reactive culture. I think it may be our most serious problem as a society. I, I, like if we sat here today and we said, okay, let's make a list of all of the problems of our culture. I mean, we'd come up with a long list, probably 20 or 30 things. I'm convinced, though, near the very top of the list is that we as a culture, we are a reactive people. A polarized, rage-induced, reactive people. And we know nothing of what it is to be contemplative. And one of the reasons we come to a church ought to be that we get formed counterculturally in a different way. That we're not reactive people that were contemplative people. Listen to what I'm saying. Not disengaged. We're still engaged, but we're not engaged in a reactive fashion. We're engaged with contemplative spirit-received wisdom. I think one of the worst tragedies that can happen is when a church becomes conformed to the pattern of political and religious reactivity, where we just, we're just as polarized, just as given to rage, just as reactive as our pagan neighbors or secular neighbors would be a better way of saying that. Being, in rea being reactive in religion and politics is just about the most spiritually damaging thing I can think of. I'm going to say it again. Being reactive in religion and politics can be the most spiritually damaging, most spiritually unhealthy thing I can think of. I want you to consider, just for a moment, consider two people. Caiaphas, the high priest, and Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. What, what, what do those two men symbolize for us? Caiaphas and Pilate. Well, Caiaphas is the preeminent, supreme, formal religious leader of the, of the day, in Jesus' day. Caiaphas is representative of supreme religious leadership. Pontius Pilate is the same thing when it comes to politics in first century Israel. So Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate are the figureheads of first century religion and politics in the Jewish first century. And I want you to think about what I'm going to say. 
that Jesus was condemned by Caiaphas as a blasphemer and crucified by Pilate as an insurrectionist should temper our religious and political certitude and reactivity. Why? Because we could be wrong. We should learn the lesson from these reactive men who were certain of their religion and politics and they crucified Christ. I don't think Caiaphas and Pilate spent much time contemplating underneath a fig tree. I think they were too busy placating and inflaming the reactive masses for their own self-serving agenda. So let's become contemplative people in a reactive age. Now, if we're not going to hate our enemies, what should we do? Because here's the thing. Here's the conundrum. We're still going to have enemies. We're still going to have threats. We're still going to have things that, that want to provoke rage in our lives. So what do we do in those moments? What we do is we, we learn to sit with Jesus under the fig tree. We sit with our fear. We sit with our rage. We sit with our anxiety under the fig tree with Jesus so that Jesus can take us around and give us a 360 degree perspective of the issue so that rather than reacting out of rage and fear we can respond in the love and humility of a cruciform posture thank you for listening to today's message to learn more about village church visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org